hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people, like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. The Copper Pig Brewery in Lancaster, New Hampshire, is brewing traditional and innovative high-quality beers, as well as serving a large menu of creative comfort foods, appealing to all walks of life, with daily specials sourcing many ingredients locally. Charitable involvement and support of their community is the cornerstone to the Copper Pig Brewery's mission. Voted number one in New Hampshire by WMUR Viewer's Choice two years in a row, 2018 and 2019. Please join me at the Copper Pig. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those 
who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 48, Scott Fisher, Arizona Game and Fish. I'm doing the lead-in by myself this week. Unfortunately, John's uh, busy, but fortunately, he's busy. Uh, John's one of those guys that's got a lot of irons in the fire, and it's just it's an awesome thing for the podcasting business. It's an awesome thing for John to get out our message, to get out his message. He's one of the few guys that can go out and talk about this marijuana eradication and the devastation it has on our environment and spread that word. So John was honored to be the keynote speaker at the Tennessee Narcotics Officers Association annual conference and actually went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and was able to do that conference and talk about those types of things. And that was just an awesome opportunity for John. And, and then John came back and uh, he's back in Montana and he's got you know some good friends over and they're trying to get some hunting uh there was a post on warden's watch uh, john and one of his friends were able to harvest a nice mature buck and there was pictures of that so it, we enjoy getting outside this time of year i'm spending a lot of time outside and seeing country almost revisiting cases so to speak i'm going in areas that i had cases years ago and, and revisiting those revisiting memories it's it's nostalgic for me to get out there and hiking and get out there and hiking and actually hunting and carry a gun looking for game rather than looking for evidence of illegal activity or actually focusing in on these cases. But it's nice to, to go back to those areas that have changed quite a bit, old cuts now to new cuts then. It is uh, definitely a, a different situation. But it's really cool to have those memories and to, to share those with you guys, the, the, the cases that I have done cases these officers have done and we reflect back and we share those with you so you can see how passionate we are about what we do and what a great job we do for this country for north america and hopefully we'll get around the world and show other officers doing a great job at conserving and i I go over that a lot preservation versus conservation conservation is the wise use of the resources preservation is just trying to keep it there and when you try to keep something there and, and up at population, what happens with the animal population is disease steps in and takes over and limits that population. And we would much rather be using hunting as a management tool, fishing as a management tool, rather letting than letting disease take over and managing that population for us. Because that's not even healthy for human populations that have disease step in. There's a lot of things that go into conservation you know our biologists contribute so much of the research and the science to it law enforcement uh, enforces the rules that are put in place for those standards those goals set by those managers and it's it's a big team effort and it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of work that goes into it and that just steps right into arizona because arizona if you're a game warden you're also a wildlife manager you are one in the same. Your duties are collateral. You are out there collecting wildlife biology information, bringing that back so these reports can be generated, so your research in the field 
is implicated into the management plan. It, it's pretty awesome to listen to Scott Fisher to, to get that well-roundedness of being both the biologist and the game warden and how that brings to his job. You know, and I did question him, how how much, you know, can you do one and the other? Because it, it is hard to focus on one job when you're doing so many. And he kind of walks us through that. And you can tell he really likes doing what he does. And I think every game warden is a lay biologist, so to speak. Some of these guys have, you know, degrees just as much as a biologist has. Um, certainly I've worked for some of those game wardens that had, you know, degrees and and then some of us just become lay biologists by being out there, by understanding, by working with the biologists using their information. And then they use our information in the field. But Arizona develops their own wildlife managers as law enforcement and wildlife biologists. Pretty unique thing. It is done around the nation in several other states. And we'll, we'll get to those states. We'll do those interviews. And we will come full circle. But this is our first real focus on wildlife manager and game warden all in one. I really wish John could be here for that southwest. He, he, you know, he's so in tune with that border and what's going on there with the drug thing. And he knows this country and he could contribute so much when we started talking about it. And we tried to do a, a lead in a couple weeks ago and the technology just was not cooperating. So every time I'm without John, I miss him. Uh, he's been an awesome Awesome asset to Warden's Watch and the Thrun Green Line. And he's doing a lot of other things with video, uh, the V-Knives, uh, Christmas gifts. Boy, if you guys are interested in Christmas gifts, go to the wardenswatch.com. Go to wardenswatch.com and go to shop. You can get one of John's V-Knives. You can get some of John's books. Uh, you can get them signed. We have Warden's Watch wear there. So you can get sweatshirts. You can get T-shirts. Not too f- a fan of the hat, so the ball caps are they're good quality, but the warden's watch on the hat doesn't come out so good. Uh, that's the only thing. I work through another company called Spreadshirt, so basically they put our logos on their stuff and they send it to you. High quality stuff from what I've seen, but I'm not real happy with the hats. So that that's my opinion. So if you get a ball cap, I'd be careful of that. Uh, everything else seems to be a very high quality. Uh, let me know if you find out anything different, but I've had quite a few friends purchase some Warden's Watch stuff there, and they've been happy. So, you know, if you're thinking of Christmas gifts, you got the, the V-Knife, the John Norris V-Knife, which everybody should have in their car. Uh, you know, it breaks windows, it cuts safety belts. It's it's quite a tool in the case of emergency. And then you have the, the nice blade, the drop point blade there, and you can get it green or black. So something... I think should be in every vehicle because it's so handy if you ever needed it there. But, geez, I carry it all the time in case I come across an accident that I need it or if I'm going out in the woods and I need it for all kinds of things. It's it's a great tool to have. So, And we have those available on wardenswatch.com. Just go to shop and check that out. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. We're going to get right into this podcast with Scott Fisher from Arizona Game and Fish. And that's one of the things I tell our listeners, that uh, across the country, they're all named a little bit different, and it's hard catching those. And then some of the titles are different as well, because some of us go paramilitary with lieutenants, captains, sergeants, that type of thing, and some have managers and supervisors, and it's all kind of different, but the same. So, and how's Arizona go about as far as a command structure? So Arizona is one of those different states. We don't use the, the military nomenclatures. 
we've recently assigned rank, but it doesn't, um, it, it, it hasn't fully taken hold. Um, so technically I am a lieutenant and that's the position uh, in rank that I hold, but my formal position is a law enforcement program manager. Okay. So, and what does everybody call you as far as, is it just Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a we're title that goes along with that? <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're pretty informal in the agency. We don't yeah. tend to worry about rank too much. You know, it's not like people walk around and call me LT or LAPMs. Usually, if, if anything, if we're talking about meetings or gatherings of similar ranks, it's, it's an LAPM meeting. It, we shorten up the law enforcement program manager because there's eight others in the agency and uh, we're all considered lieutenants. Okay. How big is Arizona as far as your numbers of uh, game wardens? Uh, sworn, we have about 132 uh, sworn uh, field wardens themselves are what we call wildlife managers. We do follow that wildlife manager model where we do both biology and law enforcement. Cool. Um, that, that number in the field is uh, including supervisors or sergeants. Would in, I believe it's 92 nice. statewide. Yeah. I say that's cool that you do both jobs, but doing my job as just uh, strictly law enforcement with some collateral duties like stocking fish and you know, certainly helping out the biologists, I can't even imagine taking on other other things because my plate was pretty dang full most of the time so doing wildlife management as well as law enforcement it just uh how do you balance those types of things and what types of things do you do and do they complement each other or i i think they do complement each other pretty highly you know it helps make you more of that wildlife expert in your district in your patrol area it gives you that intimate knowledge you know uh we do or our wildlife managers at least they do all, I say all, but, you know, in coordination with strict researchers and biologists that that's their only function in our agency. You know, our wildlife managers are integral to any of those processes of survey work, hunt recommendation work. You know, we're in a permit system in Arizona, lottery permit system. And so the wildlife managers are the ones who take the survey data and and do all the statistical work to, to determine the proper amount of permits that are issued based off hunt success, um, uh, recruitment into the populations, and they have to have their finger on the pulse of what's happening biologically in their district. You know, they have to pay attention to habitat conditions, pay attention to recruitment and fecundity and, uh, and, and different issues of predator-prey relationships. So they, they have to have that intimate knowledge to be able to make those decisions. And, and ultimately, my view on it is that makes them more, uh, more of an expert, you know, as I said, more of an expert in their district. And then you take that law enforcement piece, right, the conservation and management and law enforcement, and, and just add that on top. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a full plate. It really is, yeah. you know. Um, we definitely don't have the, the, the wildlife populations that Middle East and, and Eastern U.S. has. You know, it's apples and oranges there. But we, we have our share of poaching just like everybody else. And wildlife violators, you know, they're, they're universal across the states. You add that in there and, and then you take away. We don't work a shift. We work when we have to work. And then that, that becomes a balancing act for the, for the wildlife managers. So we, we try to preach, you know, healthy lifestyles because – if you you can you could definitely work yourself into a bad situation you know 
know, via stress and, and putting your personal life aside in, in Arizona. But I, I think our officers, to their credit, do a wonderful job of ma- maintaining a healthy lifestyle and, and finding a balance. So, yeah, that's, it's a, that's it's very a hard to do. Yeah, it is a lot, though. You are correct. Yeah. I used to have a rule that you don't burn the candle at both ends, you know, meaning if you go out at four in the morning, you don't work till 10 at night. And they never, they never listened to it. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to, to make that healthy balance, because I know that's the way that I burn out really quick. So I just tried to pass that on, but no, nobody ever listened. They just, they worked and they worked and they worked. I think that's a game warden thing. So when there's, there's always violators out there and it's just hard to sleep, especially during this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. It's like trying to put a dog on a leash, right? I mean, they <laughs> want to go, they want to get them, and and you you know you can go out there and get them, but at what cost, right? Yeah, no, no, no doubt, exactly. And you got to think of yourself a lot more. So, like, if you come across a deer, do you actually like try to get an age out of it? Do you take biological data? Uh, you have a hundred successful. Do you just do you do all that in, in a, as part of your check or? Our, our compliance checks, we don't have mandatory check-in in Arizona. We don't okay. have uh, mandatory sampling or anything like that. It's There is voluntary reporting at the end of the season <clears throat> for statistics, and and we have a whole statistical model, and that's outside of the realm of, of you know the warden's work, so to speak. That runs through our, our research branch. and So the average contact for us really is about compliance with licensing, possession of tags, um, whether or not you're hunting in the right area because our permits are only good for certain times and for certain locations. So your season may not stretch across the entirety of the state. It's usually for a very specific location, which will have delineated boundaries and for a specific time frame. So that's usually what we're checking for compliance is that we don't have people out there trying to get away with something by hunting in an area they're not supposed to be or at a time that they're not supposed to be there. And then on top of that, the, the myriad of other violations that could be present, uh, let's say like buddy hunting, like maybe there's two or three guys going out to help one guy who has a tag, but all of them are carrying rifles. And that happens from time to time. Different regulations with regards to weapon type. Maybe it's a, a muzzleloader season. Like you said, you got to you got a hunt you've been toting around your smoke pole mm-hmm. and and say we do have muzzleloader only seasons um maybe somebody's trying to get away by toting a rifle um or during the archery seasons that's a big one some someone may be trying to sneak a rifle into the season and, and take the easy way out um so compliance with weapon type uh method of take is what we call it those those are the primary things we're really looking for it's really just a lot of high howdy and, and trying to determine if we're finding violations on each contact. Um, uh, you know, not a lot of poaching specific stuff during the seasons, rather just compliance work. Yeah. And we had talked about it before too. That's, I got to start recording these quicker so we don't go over the same thing, but Arizona, because of all your responsibilities has a higher education requirement than a lot of other States doing a similar job. And because of you're doing your, your management. So can, and I know that Arizona is currently open now to taking applications or maybe you're closed, but you're going to be filling some positions. So maybe you can talk about the qualifications. I know a lot of our listeners are inspiring game wardens. Yeah. Uh, being part of the training program, I, I do a lot of the hiring work. We don't put that through our human resources uh, uh, section. I am actually later today, I'm going to be reviewing applicant packets 
Um, the qualifications are different in Arizona because we're a wildlife manager model and not just a game warden model. Not to say one's better than the other, but it works for Arizona. Our game wardens do biology work. And that being said, we require a four-year degree, a bachelor of science in at least biology, but there needs to be some conservation work inside of that. So some credit hours that go towards conservation education, like wildlife management classes, zoologies, uh, wildlife ecology, things of that nature. My personal degree was in wildlife management directly from the University of Arizona. So it was, it's, it's like the direct line in, but all three of the state universities have great programs that fit our needs. Um, so if, if someone was to be an aspiring wildlife manager for the state of Arizona, you have to have that. First and foremost, got to get that educational component out of the way because it's, it's a non-starter if you don't have it. Um, and then most of the rest of it is, is really just similar to the rest of the United States in general. Uh, a lot of background work with criminal history, drug use. Um, those are things that are common disqualifiers. And then, um, you know, you'll go through our background process and then an oral interview. Um, and that's to, to exemplify what you've learned in college. Hopefully, if you made it that far, you already have the degree. What you've learned and, and your knowledge and skills and abilities that you've gained over a lifetime to that point and how that's going to benefit the state of Arizona should you be given a badge and, and what quality of wildlife manager, you know, we're going to put out there. Because um, it's important. You're the face of our department, just similar to like being in Maine or New Hampshire, you know, those wardens are the face that the public sees. And we need to be able to, to put that base, best face out there to represent the department. So we want thinkers and we want people who are, who are in touch with what the mission and the vision of the department's about and, and can speak you know, intelligently about that. Do you find your candidates have pretty much focused on that job and that's how you get them? It sounds like you might have had a focus on becoming, uh, doing your job from the beginning. Yeah, I, I think so. Probably at least 80% of the folks that come our way, this was their goal. And maybe not right from the beginning of their college experience, but at some point they decided that, hey, being a wildlife manager is where my life's going to lead me. Um, there's other people that you know make it a second career. We've had folks that, that got the degree because it was interesting, and then they went off and did other work with either another police agency or maybe they joined the military or they're coming back from the military and doing GI bill. And this was always something that they, you know, found attractive and, you know, it was a dream to be a game warden. And that, that happens frequently too, but by and large, yeah, people set their sights on, on doing this work for various motivations, but, uh, but they have a goal in mind and, and it's to do this type of work with wildlife and for the betterment of conservation for the state. Mm -hmm. Nope. That, that sounds uh, similar to the one, the, the people that we get, but on the other hand, yours is that extra step. So, and we're finding it's hard to find qualified individuals. And when you start adding four-year degrees and things like that, I imagine your pool of individuals is even smaller. Definitely. I, I think, well, and I don't know if that's just conservation law enforcement. I think that pool's dwindling in law enforcement in general. Mm -hmm. I, that's a whole other conversation. But yes, the, the, putting that, that degree requirement has definitely been a challenge for us. And we've explored options to expand it over the years. We've, we've explored 
the option of maybe making the criminal justice degree applicable. We've explored expanding to just straight biology and not having that conservation focus. And, and we have loosened those reins, so to speak, over the years to see if we could bring in more applicants. And, and it's had mixed results, honestly. We're still resisting the criminal justice only degree requirement solely for the fact that we want people that have a passion for wildlife. And if they have that passion, hopefully they would have educated themselves to this. Plus, there's a big difference between being educated in biology and being educated in criminal justice solely, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The scientific method, so to speak, you know, that's, that's big in all of the work that we do and it's the foundation. And, and that's what you learn in college as far as as soon as you get into any biology program, that's the foundation and and you build from there. And, and, and so having someone who at least has that and, and has educated themselves in that we still see as a value. I don't know if we'll ever truly move away from the biology requirement. We're still on the fence, (laughs) but it's made our hiring difficult. Yeah. We, we used to. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history designed by John Browning. The 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I've heard stories from back in the day, you know, the old timers, so to speak. They they would talk about applicant pools of 600 plus for three positions. And I'll tell you this this last round of, of applicants that I'm reviewing, and this isn't all qualified applicants. This is all applicants. I think we're at like 120. So then whittle it down to those that have the correct degree and we might be at closer to 20, <laughs> you know. And then you continue to whittle it down with the psych, back, psych and background work, and we might get a little closer to 10. And do you have physical and, uh, requirements, too, in Arizona as well, as far as physical PT, that type of thing, physical training? Absolutely. Have to pass and- absolutely, yeah. Once you get to the academy experience, there are minimum standards of all officers <laughs> in the state. We don't fall outside of that. That's an AZ post requirement, right? Um, our post, our governing board for peace officers in the state of Arizona, they require certain um, physical minimums, you know, and they're wrapped around things like running and push-ups and sit-ups and flexibility and things of that nature. Um, so we have to adhere to those standards too. Yeah. Well, just just looking at you, Scott, reminds me of physicalness because uh, certainly, uh, you know, if somebody's watching this on Patreon, they can see that uh, Scott Scott works out quite a bit, so... Uh, he's certainly uh, <laughs> one of the poster boys for physical Arizona game wardens, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's why I figured <laughs> they had some kind of physical requirement. You, you talk about the, that work-life balance and, and, and how to not burn the candle at both ends. And, and since I took the desk job, it's it's been easier to fit in my priorities of fitness, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I always... I always held that higher standard for myself of physical fitness because especially in the field, that's where it matters. You know, you never know what you're going to run up on. You might be hiking 10 miles to do a recovery one day. And at the end of that day, you might find yourself in a, in a, in a physical altercation with a suspect. Never know. 
That that is so true, so true. So we know each other through Operation Game Thief, and is it Operation Game Thief in Arizona as well? Yes, it is. So that that that's good. That's I like using that branding, but I still think everybody should be inter- uh, wildlife crime stoppers, and then you throw the state's name in there because I'm big on branding. That's why I just all the different agencies with the different names. It would take so much money to rebrand everybody the same, but consistency across the country, I think it would be helpful when we try to get a message out, a unified message. Like most of our messages are very unified to begin with, and then to create something unified, I think is a better branding technique. But that's just me. I certainly uh, had had some influence with International Wildlife Crime Stoppers and rebranding that, and that I thought was very necessary compared to the Iran rack we used to be. Um, and I don't yeah. even know what that stands for still. <laughs> International Association of Resource Crime Stoppers yes. or something. I don't know. And, so and that was exactly my point. <laughs> IWC, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. So much easier yeah. to remember. And, and I always, t- I, I throw this out on the show a lot. The best thing about International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, no matter where you are in North America, you can click, go to their website, click on it, and how to report wildlife crime. So I can go to Arizona, click on Arizona, and they tell me how to report uh, a wildlife crime in Arizona. You know, some of the fundamentals uh, came out of Arizona for that. I believe the the compact was, uh, Arizona was a big uh, lead in getting our inter- our. our compact together which is basically if the the violator violates a fishing game law within that state and another state has a similar law and there's a license suspension attached to it that they lose their license in that state or province and I believe almost everybody is under that except for maybe one or two states left uh they may even be on board so that that's that's pretty cool that that that's going on but yeah, so that's that's how Scott and I know each other is through International Wildlife Crime Stoppers and going to the conferences together and working together towards a greater good in the wildlife crime. Do you have a, a good poaching story? Because uh, the Warden's Watch listeners just love a, a good case story. And if you could share one of yours from Arizona, I think that would be. I mean, we were talking about mini white-tailed deer when, before I started recording. Um, coos, coos, and I live in Coas County. It's, but it's actually spelled C-O-O-S. Same as the deer, right? Yeah, same same as the deer. So, in fact, the, the cor- correct pronunciation is cows in Arizona. It's named after a, 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 a biologist, you know, as is typical. Huh. Um, and it, it's it's technically pronounced cows, but it's been adopted as coos over the year, and it's C-O-O-S-E here. Oh, there's an E on it. Okay. I, th- I think. I'm almost positive. Yeah, you're probably right because ours is Coas, and we have the asterisk above one of the O's to make it that way. And my county's named after an Indian chief, Chief Coas. So I just thought it was interesting that, but everybody mispronounces Coas as Coos, Coos County. So that when you had the Coos white, uh, Coos deer, I was like, well, that's kind of like our own uh, our own county deer. But that's <laughs> something personal for sure. But it, it certainly has stuck out with me. So and they're a mini whitetail. So uh, basically, huh? Yeah, they are. They're, they're substantially smaller than eastern whitetail for sure. But, but just I don't. I don't have tons of poaching cases with involving coups. But one of my best ones was actually my last one before I took my desk. And to kind of jump into that, it it was one of those those cases that just was good fortune, right? All the stars aligned, mm. and and it was almost minimal investment on my part. I love those. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even in my district. Um, so. I, I happened to be in Phoenix, you know, 
the, the capital of Arizona. And I was just traveling back from Phoenix to Yuma uh, after a meeting. And, you know, my department cell phone rings while I'm in transit. And I was very close to home. I was just outside of Yuma, which is where I was living at the time. And the phone rings as I'm passing a small town called Welton. And that's about 25 miles east of Yuma. It's mostly an agricultural community. It was a number I didn't recognize. I answered it and, and identified myself. And it was someone I didn't know. He wanted to directly report uh, a deer being poached as we were speaking. You know, he was watching a guy running a light in an alfalfa field and said he had just shot a doe that was down in the middle of the field. And you know, I asked him where he was. And, you know, so I, I worked for, you know, as a quick aside, I worked for Operation Game Thief as a dispatcher before I became an officer. And I took the phone calls and, and then now I was a wildlife manager and had no idea that soon I was going to be a, you know, running the OGT program, <laughs> but it's a weird nexus and sorry for the tangent, but, yeah, but no good background. Uh, it, it all went full circle right there. And now I took a direct phone call from, a, from a, a, a reporting party as we call them. And he was telling me what happened. And I asked him where he was. He told me it was near Welton. I was like, well, I'm passing the exit to Welton, so here I come. Usually, if we're going to respond to a call for service like that, we're looking at 30 minutes or greater, depending on the size of my my district. At the time, was 2,000 square miles, <laughs> you know. So, you know, response might have been two hours or better, depending right. on where the violation occurred. And this, so I, I was thrilled to have like a five minute response time. Yeah, and uh, went out there, ha- had the guy. I started getting backup called into me right away. Um, cause I didn't know, I knew there was guns in play and it was getting very, very dark at the time. And, and I didn't know anything other than what I was told is this guy was shooting a, a gun out of his vehicle and had, had just killed a doe and that he pulled his truck to the middle of the alfalfa field. So it'd be very identifiable, <laughs> you know, cause that's not something you see here in Arizona. People don't drive through other people's fields. I didn't know you had fields so, in Arizona. Yeah, mostly along river corridors. It, there's there's a lot of agriculture in Arizona and That's everything from I think it's you know, cactus winter left. I think Arizona, I think cactus is everywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> That's true too. That's true too. But there's 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 a lot of agriculture in those fertile river bottom valleys, you know. And that was where one of these, that's what Welton sits in one of those valleys. So nice. went out there and I was able to easily find the vehicle, but I couldn't find either of the two suspects that were described to me. And uh, they had seen me coming obviously for headlights and other things. Uh-huh. And, and so I just pulled my truck out into the field with them and, and uh, started running lights around trying to identify these folks and, you know, hoping for backup soon because now I'm all by myself. And, Finally found them. They walked out of the darkness, uh, kind of from the southeast of me, from about 100 yards out beyond the reach of most of my lights, and uh, went into just interview and interrogation, right? I, I knew the facts of what this witness had seen, and uh, so kind of playing the dumb, the, the dumb cop at the time, not wanting to give away my sources and all my knowledge, you know, just started into the, the basics, right? What the heck are you doing parked in the middle of this field? Mm-hmm. And not to belabor the whole story, but the really they would admit to almost nothing and, you know, claim that they had shot at a coyote and, 
there was two of them. So I did the divide and conquer still had, you know, now about 30 minutes into this still having no backup because the rest of the backup was further away. Right. And, and, uh, actually ended up being a, a county sheriff was my first response, which was nice being that I was dealing with two guys. Once he got there, I was able to secure the vehicle and which was nice. I kept them away from their vehicle originally, which was difficult given the, the terrain and, and, and what was going on in darkness and everything else. But uh, it was nice because then I could get in their vehicle with their consent. And there was, I want to say 18 different weapons in the vehicle. Holy um, moly. That's yeah. It, 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 that's a whole other story. Like this guy, I guess was moving in the morning, like the next day and he had loaded all of his guns in. <laughs> There was some family drama, I guess, and he was no longer welcome at his home. <laughs> oh my goodness! And so the first thing he loaded was his guns, and uh, and then decided to go poach a deer. But so when the when the sh- county sheriff got there to help me out, Yuma County Sheriff um, got there to help me out, I could secure that, and still kind of bouncing back and forth between the two, trying to play information off of each other. And the best that I could get out of them was that they had shot at, not shot, but shot at a coyote knowing full well I had a witness that had watched them shoot a deer and watched it go down in the field before the sun went down. And uh, later on found out that they had used the time when I approached in the field to get their story straight, you know, and they stuck with it very strictly, even to the point where I backtracked their, their, you know, their path through the alfalfa. Cause you know, when you walk through, through yeah, the alfalfa, the it just goes down. It's pretty easy to follow very easy to follow. So I just backtracked it. And then there was a swath where this deer had sat there and was actually still dying. Like it was, it was not dead. And, and, you know, that's not nice to think about because here I am 30 minutes, 45 minutes into this investigation Mm. and it was still over there dying Mm. and even presented with that evidence and having their tracks coming from that direction, they would not relent to the fact that they had shot this thing. And, um, I, I never give up sources, you know, I, I had that witness statement and everything mm-hmm. else, but I never give up that, you know, they were witnessed because um, I just don't go down that road. So they can sit there and lie to me all night long and I don't care. It's just working against them. Right. Because um, tons of great physical evidence. Mm. And uh, so now I've got, you know, the corpus delecti, so to speak, and, and, you know, their tracks and tons of guns. And, you know, so I ended up seizing all the guns. Um you know, we issued a, a preliminary citation just to get the charges rolling. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I allowed them to leave with their vehicle. Um, uh, and at, at this point, we're about an hour and a half in, and I had another wildlife manager respond to my location. So we processed the rest of the scene through the evening over the next hour or two and uh, got what we could. Of course, it was very dark, so it was difficult. Um, and we made a plan to come back the next day. And, uh, you know, Yuma is right on the border with California and we have a good working relationship with the Cal at the time it was Cal fish and game. Now they're Cal fish and wildlife, I believe. Um, but I had a good working relationship with Rodney Nimlewell, who was the Cal, uh, fish and wildlife warden on the other side of the river. And he was a, he's a wildlife canine handler. So we made the plan to come back. Because there was there was this weird thing is, is the reporting party had seen them shoot at a deer in another location earlier in the evening. 
and then he saw them shoot at the doe. He saw them shoot at a buck, and then he saw them shoot the doe. He thought he heard the shot impact the buck, but there was no, we could find nothing, and not even any blood or anything at the location that the reporting party had had told us. So we decided to ask Rodney if he would bring his canine out, who who sniffs wildlife and is a wonderful dog, uh, very successful. And uh, sure enough, uh, I didn't get to come back out for that effort, but the other wildlife manager that was there with me at the time, he did or there with me that night, I should say, he did come back out with Rodney and run the dog. And then they found a second buck, a young mule deer buck dead in, in the, the reason we couldn't find it is that the field is adjacent to some salt cedar that bordered the river. Mm-hmm. And that salt cedar, you can't, you can't crawl through it. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. Wow. It's so thick, but the dog could penetrate into it and get in there and then sniffed it out. Huh. And, uh, so, you know, then we forced they they forced themselves to to get in there with it, right? And they found that young mule deer buck. So now we had two deer on them. Nice. And with the the witness statement, physical evidence on the ground, um, we were able to to levy some good charges against those two. Uh, one for the unlawful possession. Uh, he was the one who wasn't the shooter. The driver was actually the shooter, and uh, we got him for the unlawful take of of both of those deer plus the unlawful possession and uh, all of those are revocable offenses. So they're not going to be hunting in the state of Arizona anytime soon <laughs> and any of the compact States cause unlawful takes pretty much a universal. Yeah, that would definitely be um, universal. Revocable offense. Yeah. So yeah. that was one of my more interesting ones. And I won't lie that like having them just stick to that story. So, so vehemently and not, be even confronted with all that physical evidence and a dead deer in the field, you know, right there next to their truck with their footprints leading right to it. Mm-hmm. it just They wouldn't let go. They would not let go of the story until they read the report and realized what a good job of investigation was done. Not, not, you know, I won't give myself the credit. The investigation was all of us. Once they read the report, they're like, okay, yeah, we did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was months later, you know, I was so hot. I was so hot that night that they were sitting there and just lying to my face. It was even confronted with the evidence, you know? So, yeah, but you get those kinds, you know, you get those kinds that they're just not going to give up. Not. No, absolutely. I've been in those interviews where it wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. And then I throw a picture down of him doing it. And he's like, you know, the first question, how'd you get that? You know, I stopped a guy one time for throwing a beer can out the window and I pull him over. I'm like, you know why I stopped you? No. You just threw the beer can out the window. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm like, I watched you do this. And we went back and forth for five minutes. And it just, you know, I mean, the beer can was still on the road back there. I mean, I, you could actually look down the road and see it. And I'm like, but it just, he would not say that he threw. I wrote him a ticket. He, you know, he paid it, but he never, ever. And we went back and forth because you threw the, I saw you throw it. No, nope, I didn't throw it. I'm like, I saw you. I physically saw you throw that out the window. No. Uh, we did the field sobriety, and the whole time through it, I keep, you know, I saw you throw that. Nope, I didn't throw it out. Maybe the wind caught it and blew it out. I, I don't know. But you are right. They are special people that just stick to their story and, and lie, 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 lie until they absolutely know that they've been had. And then they're like, it's never like, you know, that, that I was lying. It's like, how'd you do that? Or how'd, how'd you do that? And you're right. A good investigation that lays all this information out, uh, I'm sure just it blows their mind. And that 
makes a plea come usually. I don't know how many times we've almost gone to trial. They get there and they're going to plead guilty because they're not going to they're not going to go in front of that judge with a stack of information and evidence that you were going to present against them. They're not going to take that chance because they know they're they're dead in the water. They played their game right out to the last end and then now that they think they have no other no other recourse, they're going to get, give it up. And to, to me, I never negotiated or never worked with somebody like that. You know, I, beforehand, made a mistake. I did this or that. Or even even the, the poacher that just said, yep, I did it. We'll, we'll work something out. But in the yeah. long run, when you lie, 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 we get to court, you know, and you've dragged me through this whole process. Yeah, you're going to get the same thing that hopefully the judge would have thrown at you. And uh, right. we'll, we'll work from there. But you are right. It's it's one of those, when you know that information and they lie to your face, it's just infuriating. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I'll tag this in there. I, I Now, having been more in the staff role and interacting with, you know, county prosecutors and, and judges a lot more. Uh, more from an administrative function. And I've, I've heard this comment repeatedly, and I'm, I'm going to put this across the nation, but I've heard it with regards to Arizona. And I, I've seen the quality of work from other states also, from other off- wildlife managers, game wardens from, from across the country. And I've heard this comment before that when we bring a poaching case, a good poaching case to the court, usually the county prosecutor is shocked at the level of detail and investigation that we bring them. And they've even, I've heard it at least once that they've seen homicide investigations that were not that thorough. Yep. And, and I know that that is universal for, because game wardens love what they do and they get no greater satisfaction than protecting that resource. And that's the, that's the antithesis of, of the game warden work right there is, Busting a poacher, the the one that deserves it, right? The one that did it knowing they were doing wrong. And so that's why we all get in this job, you know? Yeah. When I did a podcast with Ron Olis about the biggest case in Ohio's history, again, that comes out in that podcast when they brought the whole package. And it was multiple deer in multiple areas and just the, the size of that case that brought them down and everything. But again, the county attorney or the, the state's prosecutor, whoever did that, was just amazed at the detail. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. I think we, we take it extremely seriously. We, we, we treat it like a homicide and we investigate it like a homicide. We collect the evidence like a homicide. We, we all, we go, we, and we do it all on our own. We don't have special people coming in. It's the game wardens that are collecting this evidence, preserving this evidence, and we're trained to do that. And then we send it off to a lab to get our DNA analysis and all, all kinds of things. So we have those tools just like uh, anybody else would. And we, we, we take our time and do it. I actually went to a homicide school and that I got so much out of it for what we do, Scott, for, for investigating wildlife crime. And it was, I just took from investigating people and brought it into the other thing. But a lot of it is you are investigating people. You have the firearms side of it. You have the shooter, whether it's the killer. Um, so it, it's so relative. And yeah, it's, that, that's exciting. I loved investigations. I love interviewing people um, and, and breaking them throughout it and just, uh, just chipping away. I think the, the, Older I got, though, the, the quicker I got to the chase. You know, I didn't play the cat and mouse game quite as much because when I had the goods, sometimes they just didn't have the patience to, to play the game. And I'd say, okay, this is what I got, okay? 
Now throw your cards on the table. And usually it went a lot quicker that way. But that's just because yeah. I lost my patience or maybe I had experience more and I, I threw it out, the gauntlet down a lot quicker than I would have as a young warden. And working with young wardens, I'd watch them play the game that I used to and that's developing it. And I, it, it was great. I just uh, I, I enjoyed that investigation part. I think as we all do, it's, it's just it's it's so much fun. So. It, it really is. It really is. I I always tell the young guys that are coming in that we're hiring. It's like you're now you're not a hunter. You're a hunter of hunters. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tacovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yes. You get to go out there and find the bad guys that are doing bad for bad reasons. Yeah, and now that I'm a hunter on the other side in retirement, I'm not a very good hunter. I got to learn how to hunt all over again. I mean, it's we focus so much on being hunters of hunters and good hunters. Uh, let's face it, we don't have a lot of problems with good hunters. We're we're hunting those guys. Most of our cases are so close to the road and have easy access to roads, as that's where we focus a lot of our time. So when you're in the backwoods and you're actually trying to trick. Uh, the elusive white-tailed deer or things like that. You know, I'm actually YouTube and a lot of stuff uh, trying to learn because I, I never had to learn that part. I mean, I always enjoyed going out and hunting, and, and I always hear this from kids and kids that I'd like to be game wardens. I, I don't want to be a game warden because, uh, you know, all hunting season, you know, you don't get to hunt. And, and you're they're right to a degree, but when we hunt, we're always out there, we're in tune. Like you said, uh, that wildlife management manager knows what's going on in his area he should know where the population is he should know where to hunt he he should fine-tune his uh you know his hunting skills by putting himself in the right position so that's what i tell him i mean i I wouldn't worry about that the time you do get to hunt is you know probably a lot better than you do unless you're out there a lot as a hunter and then if you want to do a little scouting you can do a little foot patrol in a little area and I always used to like to hunt the areas that I had cases in. And boy, mm-hmm. was that effective. I mean, learning the area, finding, you know, maybe another illegal bait pile or learning the terrain. So when you came into an area, uh, when you had to approach the hunter, maybe in a stand or something, you already knew the terrain. And it's just, yeah, you're a hunter of hunters. You said it great. I, I, I like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a cool thing. But Arizona, like I said, I don't think of the the lush green uh, alfalfa fields. I think of a cactus and maybe an armadillo. And, uh, you know, you guys have some cool populations down there. You get sheep, don't you? You have elk. Elk in Arizona is like highly sought after, isn't it? You have a massive trophy herd that when you get a tag in Arizona, that's quite a feat. Yeah, absolutely. Our our elk herd is is, uh, very healthy. And we do have 
desert bighorn sheep. We got Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. Um, we don't have armadillo. Oh, okay. That's Texas. Tech. <laughs> but first time I've ever heard somebody accusing Arizona of having armadillo. Okay. But I could see the confusion. You know, arid desert Southwest Texas. Yeah. Yeah, I've just um, been but, a little bit in Arizona. I stepped over near the Hoover Dam there. So that's that's huh. about it. <laughs> just one toe in just right? one toe in i've got limited limited experience down that way so you're my source of our, information and our listeners source unless they live there <laughs> but our our elk herd is is uh well known mm. for producing very big trophy quality uh elk and uh it makes it hard to get a tag we are on that lottery permit system and I think the average draw is about seven years. Every seven years, you might get an opportunity. Wow. Is that for a resident or is that for everybody? That's for a resident. And we do have, you know, a non-resident cap in some of those units um, or some of those hunts, I should say, uh, depending on if it's that trophy bull hunt. uh, And what we call trophy bull are those early rifle or early archery hunts when when the rut's going on and they're bugling heavy. There are some caps on non-resident permits. Um, but even then, um, you know, for the resident seven, every seven years is about the average draw. You can play the odds cause it's, it is a lottery. So you can play the odds and hunt more often if you like. Um, but you may not have that same opportunity for that trophy quality. If you do that. No, well, that's interesting. Is most of Arizona a permit system, a lottery type permit system for most of your, your game, or is it, I mean, what's over the counter there? Cause I, for, as an Easterner, most everything's over the counter except maybe moose. So I'm not used yeah. to all the, those things. And after going to Nevada where most of, uh, did I say it right? Nevada. It's got, you got to say it like Boston, Nevada. Mississippi, our, our brothers right. and sisters in Nevada, they'll be proud of me, I think. <laughs> so, but everything's a draw except for, I think, uh, mountain lion cougar. Yeah, mountain lion is over the counter. Um, archery deer is over the counter. Wow. And the archery deer seasons are there's there's still specific seasons, um, and there are specific areas to go. It's much more broad than if you had a rifle tag or a general tag. Um, but uh, there are a handful of over-the-counter um, elk tags. They are very low success because it's limited amounts of, pop, you know, the population density is very low and the areas are very small. And it's usually an area where we don't necessarily want to sustain an elk population anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the two real big ones that people know that are over-the-counter are archery deer and, and then mountain lion. There's a handful of others. We do have a bear season that's over-the-counter. Um, but that's not as common for people to go and take advantage of. And then by and large, the rest of our big game species outside of those small exceptions, is it going to fall into our lottery permit system? So you have to apply, you get five different choices in your order of preference. You fill out your application and then you, you get a random number assigned to you through the computer. And if you're one of those lowest numbers in that draw cycle, then you end up with a tag. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, when you hunt out there, is it just shorts and a t-shirt? Because when I think of Arizona, I just think hot. So. <laughs> well, I have a hunt coming up. Actually, it started today, and I'm, I'm, I. You dragged your feet so you I could pri- be on the Warden's Watch podcast, didn't you? Exactly. I I prioritize this over my hunt. That's awesome. Because I like you that much, Wayne. That's um, <laughs> the 
to give you an idea where I'm going is actually further south than I am in Yuma right now. And it's, it's my old district that I used to patrol south of Tucson in a little, in an area near a little town called Sonoida. And, um, uh, it's oak and pine predominantly. So it's higher elevation. It's about, uh, I think 3,500 feet up all the way up to the top of Wrightston, I think is about uh, 5,500 feet. And, uh, we're expecting, we're in November now, and we're expecting tomorrow to be a high of 42. Not so bad. there's plenty cold, oaks and pines. We at the top of Wrightston might even see a little bit of snow through wow. this weekend. Um, so you got to be prepared for everything. I have hunted in shorts and a t-shirt before, but <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. Cause, uh, yeah, because that's what I think. When I think Arizona, I think heat. Yeah, when you when you get down to some of these low desert mule deer, you know, which can be giant mule deer. Um, sometimes in November, which actually that's opening this weekend too, the desert mule deer hunts opening this weekend too. And, uh, you know, down here in Yuma yesterday, the temperature was 95. So start difference just depends on, yeah, it depends on your elevation and what's going on and where you're at. You know, and we got everything North of the muggy on rim and I mean, everything up there is already day, daytime highs or, you know, 60s and 50s and they haven't even reached winter yet so ah that sounds like a perfect temperature for winter for me yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah you'd be right at home up on north of the muggy on rim yeah oh, that sounds like a nice spot <laughs> sounds like a good wintering range <laughs> that's where all those elk live by the way yeah. too. oh wow nice so the, the the south you were down south and i think when i think of southern arizona i think the border and you were actually assigned down that area i was hoping you could share with us some of the border activities um wildlife slash uh illegal <laughs> activities going yeah. down on the southern border my my co-host john norris is you know that's where he spends a lot of his time and with the the, the drug stuff that he has worked with as a game warden and the environmental impact with that so he has been really in that california arizona the new mexico area just just working that area and getting some uh TV stuff done with that, and I, I wish he could join us today. But the the hunting seasons really mess us up because we'd rather be in the woods and podcasting. And I get that because I was out there yesterday. I'm I'm dang tired today, so it was a good day to wear me out and be able to chill today. And the temperatures came up to yeah, they're gonna hit sixty today, Scott. So I was chilling uh, yesterday. We started off at like twenty something. It, it, it rose to to the fifties, which was good. But that's again uh, when you dress for the cold, and then it gets hot, and you're stripping. It's just yeah, it gets crazy. You know, people don't like know what athleticism is when you're a hunter, depending the type of hunting you're doing at the time. So and then yeah, yeah, climate different ball. It is. Yeah. But uh, that southwest yeah. corner, man, that, that had to be some uh, some busy times. I, I can't imagine being a game warden really close to the, the Mexican border because it sounds like there's all kinds of activity going on other than, you know, wildlife crime. And then it probably incorporates into wildlife crime. It, it can. And it has. And, and you know, I, I, I kind of reflect back to my first post of duty was was in that area. I'm going to go hunting tomorrow um, down by Sonoida. And it was a, a high human traffic and a high drug traffic area uh, at the time. It's gotten a little better and it, it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, but one thing that kind of sticks out is that was my first post of duty. So I don't think I was even a solo officer for more than about two months. And, and it was time to start thinking about deer surveys. And I had a lot of foot routes to walk as a, during deer surveys where you just walk a very specific line and you glass and you count and you, you, uh, 
uh, classify, you know, bucks, does, fawns, things like that. And uh, so me and my boss, actually, he wanted to go with me because it was my first foot route. Um, and that had been his district previously. We were hiking around Patagonia Lake, which is just east of Nogales, Arizona. A lot of folks know where that's at. Um, and, and it's only about 10 miles north of the border uh, when you're at Patagonia Lake. And so we're hiking. We stop, I think it's every 200 yards and you glass 360 degrees, keep your notes and quantify your data sheets uh, for any bucks, does, fawns and anything additional too. So if you see javelina, you count those two. And we were just moving along, you know, business as usual. And we got about halfway through the foot route and we were on top of a, a plateau getting ready to crest over into a deep wash and uh, with a mountainside on the opposite or on, you know, in front of us that we were going to work our way to. And there's a group of illegals, you know, just hunkered up under an oak tree trying to evade us. We want to find out they, they had seen us before we seen them and we're glassing them. And now, you know, we had our handheld radios with us, but radio communications, especially back then, I mean, we're talking, I'm almost ashamed to say this, this is 18 years ago, radio communications weren't the best. And uh, so it was everything we had to try to get out to our dispatch and, and try to get Border Patrol to respond to our location. And we counted, I think, 12. These were, these were dope smugglers. They were what we called mules. And um, they had, it was very obvious that they were moving, you know, uh, drugs, um, marijuana, and because uh, we could see burlap and backpacks and things. And uh, the common thing is that at least one of them is going to be armed. You know, he's going to be protecting the load. So we decided not to just charge in and try <laughs> to make apprehensions. Yeah. Because uh, they, they were likely better armed than we were at that point. We just had our pistols. And uh, so we, we kept eyes on, called in Border Patrol and gave them our grids. And, uh, you know the the grapevine game when you relay information to dispatch and then they talk to another dispatch we watched the troops coming in because where we were where we were on top of this little mesa you could see the highway below us about a mile and a half away uh, and probably about a 800 800 foot elevational change and and then they sent in the the helicopter too all of the border patrol agents pulled up along the roadside directly south of us and then started hiking off to the south. Oh, no. We were on the north, we're on the north side of the highway, <laughs> oh. and uh, so we had to follow up with some more phone calls and try to get you know better grids. Something got lost in translation, and the helicopter was circling them where they were hiking, not circling us where we were. Uh, you know, about a mile and a half away. And uh, thank goodness there was one border patrol agent who had listened to the physical description that we gave of the canyons and the mountains. We described the terrain and there was one of the peaks was named. And so he went the opposite direction of everybody else, even though his brothers in green were hiking South, <laughs> he hiked up to us. And uh, when we saw me and my boss, his name was Kurt Bati. We saw him, them all going off to the South. And my boss is just old school cowboy type. He's like, Hey, it's up to us. Let's go get them. <laughs> That's great. I, I'm the new guy. I haven't been on for more than, you know, two months at this point. I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, 
And so we dropped all of our gear except for, you know, a minimal amount of what we would need to make an apprehension. And we took off running cross country up and down mountains and across the, the desert. And uh, in its high desert, right, it's mixed in with lots of juniper and other stuff. And uh, I learned a very valuable, and I'm, I'm fresh out of the academy, all right? I'm in good shape. And I've been doing a lot of running. And uh, to my boss's credit, he was probably in his late 50s at the time. He was outpacing me going cross country. But I learned a very valuable lesson. And that is um, those, the, the folks that are smuggling those drugs usually have more motivation and better conditioning than you do because they do it for a living. There was no way on earth we were going to catch up to them. And we were only about 500 yards away when we started. And we had the advantage of trying to cut them off based off the terrain and we never even came within a hundred yards of them. (laughs) But uh, my first, my first foot pursuit was cross country in the desert, chasing illegals, not chasing some poacher or anything else. So we never got anywhere near them, but we did finally, once we found that uh, senior board patrolman, uh, he, he saw us from a distance. And so he came in and tried to cut them off too. And uh, we, there was just no way it was going to happen. But he was in comms with the rest of his folks. So next thing you know, the helicopter circling us and the rest of the troops are coming in. And I think they did end up making an apprehension later that day. It wasn't the whole group. They did end up tracking, putting hands on them. So it all worked out in the end. But I never would have guessed that my first foot pursuit was going to be after 12 illegals carrying big loads, you know, a big load of dope. And the stories went on. That was like a weekly occurrence down there, you know, and I was down there for all of about a year. so vehicle pursuits uh um you know recovering abandoned load vehicle what they call load vehicles and that's how the with they smuggle dope in a vehicle it's just called a load vehicle and i'd find those abandoned from time to time and all kinds you just never know what you're going to run into is weird because that's the terrain that they want to stay you know they're trying to evade detection Mm. what better way to do that than out there where no one but the hunters are going to be yeah, yeah, no doubt. And the game warden. Oh, I, yeah. I think across the country that game wardens run into odd things because people evading the police like to go to the woods. But I think yeah. yours is on steroids when you throw the, the southern border in there. But yeah. <laughs> California, New Mexico, all those uh, those uh, bordering states that the game wardens experience a lot more down there that is uh, different than what we do. But certainly, I think a lot of game wardens across the country have come across homicides, um, drug activity, that type of thing. And the Canadian border, uh, you know, certainly have worked that quite a bit where I live. And yeah, it's, I don't think it's renowned for it, but it certainly is a little more porous. And, you know, we did remote uh, trips and one of the best cases we ever made in my tenure was a a moose case across uh, international lines between Canada and New Hampshire, where the Canadians shot the moose in New Hampshire. And unfortunately we caught them on the no man's land, which is our our actual line, they call it the slash, the no man's land. That's the actual cut line. And they weren't actually in our state. It would have been a much better case had they been our state. But we, we, we got them poaching the moose and certainly uh, that, that worked out good. So that was cool. But yeah, those, those borders add a whole different life to it. And it sounds like you were very busy doing a lot of law enforcement as well as counting deer for your survey. <laughs> It kept things interesting for sure. And, and, and it really, what it does is it really just, it helps to hone your situational awareness. You know, we as officers, we have to have really good situational awareness. And it just, it made that, that I think I was fortunate to have that early experience is like, oh, 
okay, this is a real thing. Mm. And, and carried that with me the rest of my career to, to always be on top of your situational awareness. Right. And I'm sure you were got a little bit better calling them in and giving better topography and, and things like that, learning from that. Cause I'm certainly calling the troops and they go the other way that that's not good. So try to, and I know how communications are so frustrating when you can't talk and then you can't talk directly to them. And certainly in 18 years, we have come a long ways in communications, uh, with the Border Patrol yeah. and other agencies, which has been phenomenal in law enforcement work. Oh, can't, can't get any better. I think our cell phones are out distancing our radios at this point. Oh. I think you're right. Yeah. And that'll be our next radio will be your cell phone. It'll just be on your, it'll be a radio cell phone. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I want to take a moment to, to, to recognize and give kudos to all of our, our state's dispatchers. The most it, you know critical component of what we do, I'm not downplaying you know the fact that they screwed something up it's just the way things tend to happen right it's just that unfortunate it's a telephone game thing. yeah you know, yeah you start the story in here and by the time it gets there it's a totally different story now you know our our dispatchers are our lifelines that's that's what they are they're our lifelines and i have i have so much respect for dispatchers so much respect and they've been that lifeline through a whole career for me literally and are for every officer out there and there is there's no tougher job i think because they deal with the front end of a situation all the time and yes. yeah they don't get recognized enough nor do they get paid enough and they are some outstanding individuals so yeah i know for, for dispatchers not putting them down whatsoever because they have some of the toughest jobs in law enforcement or medical or everything they dispatch it's the emergency up front that they start to yeah. my hats off to them so it takes a special person to do it and make a career out of that yeah so, it does really i couldn't do it <laughs> i did do it for three years wow and uh it's given me a, a, a greater respect for them every time I'm out. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. Well, Scott, any anything because this is Morden's Watch as much your podcast as is my podcast. Uh, so, any, anything in closing? We, we covered a lot about Arizona. Now that I know it's just not about cactuses and heat, but it sounds like an exciting place to come visit. It, it is. It's a it's a beautiful piece of country, it, it, and you know it's diverse. I think that's the the common misconception is that. You know, we have every life zone imaginable, you know, it, it, excluding the Arctic, right? Um, but it, it goes all the way from lower uh, Sonoran all the way up above tree line, basically. And there's such a great opportunity for to enjoy the outdoors and, and wildlife as a resource, whether it's consumptive or non-consumptive. But it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to visit and, and enjoy wildlife and, and the resource in general. So... Um, I enjoy it, and that's why I made a life here. You know, I was born and raised here, and I love every minute of it. So, but as as far as like parting words, uh, we we rely heavily on the public through our Operation Game Thief program to help us conserve and protect. For Arizona, if you're listening in Arizona and, and need the phone number, it's one eight hundred three five two zero seven hundred. There's dispatchers there, twenty four seven, answering that phone. And we take every call very, very seriously because you are, you know, the public is our lifeline to help protect our wildlife. We make a lot of wonderful, wonderful cases off what people bring to us that we wouldn't do otherwise. We would have no idea about these violations if the public didn't give us that information. So we are heavily reliant on the good men and women who are out there enjoying the resource and have good morals and ethics and decide to take that step and make that phone call. So 
please, please help us continue to conserve and protect the wildlife. Boy, I couldn't have said it better myself, man. That was awesome. Well, well, thank you for being a guest on the Warden's Watch podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Gives us a taste of Arizona, and hopefully we'll get back there. And hopefully uh, maybe Josh Hurst can even join us, uh, another Arizona guy that I, I really enjoy talking to. I'll drop, a, I'll drop him a, a, a little hint. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again, Scott. Thank you, Wayne. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.